Welcome to our new podcast series, Gaia Says No, in which we will explore the nature and impact of human activities on the planet. Join Future Net Zero founder Summit Bowes, along with environmental campaigner Angus Forbes and analyst Alex Millward. There will be some strong language. Welcome to another episode of Gaia Says No. My name is Summit Bowes, founder of Future Net Zero, and today our topic is all about technology. We have a brilliant guest in Pavel Kisielewski. Have I got that right, Pavel? Perfect, Summit. Excellent. And you'll be talking to us about technology, but not just technology, but technology in the sense of what we're looking for is conduits towards the net zero world. So thank you very much. We'll, we'll do a full introduction in a minute. And then as ever, I'm joined by my two accomplices in time rather than crime. One of them never commits crime because Alex is just too nice. As for Forbes, God knows what he's been up to. Uh, let's start with you, Alex. You've actually escaped South London this, this week, haven't you? Yes, come away for a bit of uh, fresh air in the sunny climes of Droitwich. I heard you had to escape South London because there was some, some, some dodgy elements returning. Is that right? Yeah, lots of uh, lots of people moving around in London. I don't know what the arm number is down there, but definitely gone up recently. Yeah, gone up recently. I think someone's come back from, from their journeys. <laughs> Thank you so much, Summit. <laughs> I'm back. Good to be back in London after almost five months in France. Lovely. So good to be back. Excellent. So the R number in London is now expected to rocket. Is that right? That's it. That's it. <laughs> No, one doesn't want to joke about these things, but we were no. we were based in uh, in Aquitaine, so southwest France, where the R was low the whole time. So okay. I and you 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 are socially distancing, I can tell. Oh, I sure am. Yeah. It's yeah, not that I... popular either, so there's a, there's a self defence mechanism. <laughs> there isn't a queue at the front door for. There isn't know, a queue at the front door. <laughs> do you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and the sort of your your sort of technological kind of love affair that's that's developed recently well if i'm brutally honest you know having spent uh, two and a half decades in finance uh, quite difficult to look my grandchild in the in the face and, and really feel as though i'd made a difference so the opportunity yeah. arose with uh, a parent at school who was a, a chemical engineer with a huge amount of intellectual property he needed help funding a business it wasn't my particular speciality chemical engineering uh, but uh, eight years ago we put the two skill sets together and created a company that is finally doing some good Let's give it a plug. What's it called and what does it do? CCM Technologies. It basically uses CO2, the devil incarnate, as a trigger to add other waste materials from sewage, from food waste, from agricultural slurries, blending them together in a fairly simple manner, but a patented process, into a fertilizer that a farmer would recognize, giving him exactly the same outcome in terms of crops and protein yields but critically also putting carbon back into the soil and regenerating soil health, which is one of the great problems that we faced because the fertility uh, has declined so rapidly over the last six decades of industrial farming that yeah. we have a problem to feed the world in about 60 years. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we'll, we'll have a further conversation in a bit. But look, 
All joking aside, gents, I mean, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this podcast series. It's doing far better than I ever imagined, and definitely more importantly, however much Angus imagined uh, when we started. So uh, thank you for listening. Please share it with your friends and colleagues who are interested in what we've been talking about. And let's go back, boys, to our first sort of early chats. And do you remember when we talked about, you know, in your book, and I hate to pr- plug his book, but I'm going to, in your book, uh, Angus, and you talked about the great acceleration. You talked about how we used technology, mainly fueled by fossil fuels, to really rocket ourselves out of mass poverty, famine, uh, disease. And the truth is technology has been our saviour, has it not, over, particularly over the last 50 to 80 years? Um, I don't know if one can use the word saviour, um, but gosh, in terms what, of health, what, in terms what of facilitate, what a facilitator. You're so right. Let's go back to the end of the Second World War. 2.5 billion people uh, living on this planet, and we've tripled that to 7.5, and at the same time, taken uh, billions out of poverty. Of course, yep. that was the big winning ticket of the Millennium Development Goals. And uh, that, that industrial expansion, the technological expansion, um, uh, and our ability to feed ourselves, and of course, the- Keep ourselves the, alive. Think about yeah, it's kept us alive, and, yeah. and electricity consumption, energy consumption as a percentage of a GDP is a direct link to um, income per capita. And, and, and a lot of that has been down to the engineering brilliance and technological brilliance that we've observed in the last 50 years. I wonder whether we feel that, you know, we've done technology in the sense that we've used it to fill in, as we've covered in various episodes, sort of gaps. You know, technology has replaced religion in some areas and faith in other areas. We've used it to be the thing that if we can't function, we use technology to help us function from fertility to uh, you know yield of crops whatever in a lot of ways I suppose the moral driver for the use of technology has been the fact that it's there so we've invented it and then we go well we're going to use it because why wouldn't we two things it's going to make a difference and secondly it's going to make money I wonder whether we ever really thought in the last 40-50 years how much People have thought about what else does it do, particularly to our environment. Alex, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think you know that, that period that we talked about, the great acceleration, particularly from the 1950s, on on, hum, on all short, short-term human aspects, health, wealth, and all those things have, have been fantastic. And I think increasingly, you know, that that was seen as measured through GDP, uh, you know, yes. an economic dollar figure. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, that's the mark of how good you're doing, isn't it? You're technologically advanced. I was listening to a, a comment on a on an almost as popular podcast, the Freakonomics Radio guys, um, <laughs> who sort of coined the phrase "the uh, gross environmental product." Has a look at in parallel to that great acceleration, there's been a great degradation uh, of of the planet's natural capital, uh, and to be able to sort of economically factor that in so uh, you know, we're getting better at being able to value what is ultimately the greatest technology we've ever seen you know that that mother nature gave us and Gaia yeah uh, you know, so hopefully in this one we'll, we'll touch on some of some of that technology as well where are we going with technology boys where, where, 
do we do we just see it as the same thing? You know, I remember in the early nineties working at the BBC and you know, GM, it was massive, you know, genetically modified crops, that was gonna be the big thing. We had Dolly the ship with cloning, but all these things about kind of how even then, you know, the conversation around how we feed ourselves. Um, as we enter the phase we are now at, you know, we're here in the time of recording this, we're in the grips of this weird heat wave we've had lately. Um, you know, we've had the hottest years on record for the last few years around the globe. Are we now going to look at technology to, in a way, save us from what technology did to us? Angus? I'd like to answer that in two parts, if I may. Yeah, go on. Gaia is giving us a, a, an absolutely clear instruction right now. Yeah. And that is, your industrial metabolism, the human race, has reached my natural planetary metabolism. Yeah. In, in almost exceeding it, which means we get environmental degradation, etc. And she is saying, you do what you need to do to get my metabolism up and your metabolism down. To use whatever technologies you've got right now, your engineering, as long as there aren't secondary tertiary effects that are you know, terribly um, bad, but you do whatever you need to do. Organize yourselves however you need to organize yourselves, engineer um, the problem away. In the short term, do what you have to do and do it very, very fast. Secondly, however, I think the experts are telling us that the trends in technology Mm -hmm. may also require uh, an incursion into global governance because um, artificial intelligence, robotics, yep. Yep. the sheep, you know, to the factor of 10, these forces that humanity are releasing require um, global regulation. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? When we look at technology, we look at what we could do. And it's like that line from Jurassic Park, you know, your scientists are busy... Uh, think about what they could. They didn't stop to think whether they should. Good old Jeff Goldblum. I love that line. But that that's the thing, isn't it? Because we can, should we? Well, I mean, I think there's a... Sorry, sorry to butt in. But no, I no, come on. I just want to give you um, a plug for somebody else. Um, that, <laughs> is, that is a guy called Bernard Picard. He was the lunatic that decided it was a good idea to fly around the world in 2015 in a plane strapped only with solar panel uh, yeah. uh propulsion i remember that yes but when he came back he found he had a huge voice and he decided to use that voice um and he was called to the white house to speak with obama he was a keynote at davos etc what he has done through the solar impulse foundation he's created is yeah. to set out to find the thousand solutions that change fundamentally the ecology and the environment for the better but here's the critical bit through the lens of profitability. So yeah. it's like ours can submit our technology for a very brutal four months due diligence by some of the leading technical brains in the world and get a coveted label for the Solar Impulse Foundation. Now they've just celebrated finding 500 of these solutions which are on the Solar Impulse Foundation Efficient Solutions website. We obviously love it because we were 213 on the list and they've got another 500 to find. But it is very clear in my mind that he sees these solutions as being within the context of citizens and governments and corporates not having to sacrifice uh, to, to come up with the right solutions. Now, in our little world, and I'm conscious that I think about the world in the micro uh, and what we can do today, and, and Forbes, he thinks about the world on a much bigger, grander scale. Yeah, yeah. 
But both, both viewpoints are what we need. We're conscious that you can feed the world without destroying the planet. I mean, the system is broken and we need to move away from this linear obsession that we have that deplete resources and pollute the planet. But we can move to the circular economy where, where both the value of biological and economical um, uh, resources can be kept within the system and used again and again. So I think you know there are real solutions and that's why I commend the Solar Impulse Foundation because I think they're thinking about the world in the right way. And, and that's the thing, isn't it? If we look at where we are now, you know, this whole issue of technology, the drivers for it, there were two elements in the past. One was the, this, the pure science, yeah? Which was, oh, I wonder what happens there if I stick a lens there or if I do this. And this, this was the creative period of where science was all about discovery. And then we realized that it makes a fundamental change and then all that, that change, it has a good for science it also has a good for people making money. Yeah. And I have no problem with that. I have no problem with people inventing a device that cleans water and helps people live longer in, you know, my, my home, my mum's my home city of Calcutta. Uh, if, if they're selling those as little filters for people for a few hundred rupees and, and it keeps life going, good on them to make money. But the question has always been how, Pavel, we... we square that thing of how many resources we use to make a product and then what do we do about the cost that's not nearly always backed the environmental cost the cost to Gaia of us building things and using things do you think when you talk to people now that maybe there is even an awareness in scientists about the extra price not the kind of here's my science here's my product here's where I'm going what will it cost yeah, I mean, the cost issue is there the whole time. You know, and every time we talk to governments, you know, they're, the first natural instinct, and it happened here in the UK with the Chancellor when I was speaking to him, and, and when he asked what I did and I told him, he put his hands in his pockets. It was sort of Pavlovian. But, uh, <laughs> think, look, while technology doesn't need government subsidies, and his hands came out of his pockets, weirdest thing to, to witness. But, but I think it's very clear that there are technologies that can base around one fundamental tenant and that is waste is only a resource in the wrong place yeah now, we've been clever enough to say that but actually Mahatma Gandhi got there first yeah but the principle around driving technologies is look at the waste and for us the biggest key waste is is using co2 as a resource not the devil incarnate and I think there are a lot of technologies not just ours that are seeing the world through a different lens and and, and looking at the waste because when you look at waste, it immediately draws you into the circular economy because you're saying, I want to waste again and again and again. Yeah, and that's the other thing. You, you look at all the things. I mean, we're, we're going to do a series on futurenetzero.com all about whether electric cars are really that green. Because yeah. if you look at the, the levels of lithium, barium, cobalt, all the stuff, the steel that comes into making them, and you just take away the, the, the embedded carbon, as, as people may know the term embedded carbon cost, it means... What did it cost the planet? Let's keep it simple. What did it cost the planet to make this thing, let alone the running costs? So you think now there is a shift in thinking to take that environmental cost into what everyone starts to build moving forward? I, I absolutely do. And I think the driver was not the one we initially thought of when we set the business up. Interestingly, it's the food retailers and manufacturers that have are leading the drive because they're responding to the consumer i.e. you and me yeah. um, 
demanding traceability of the food that we eat and consume. And that during the pandemic has only just accelerated. Yeah. And, it, and they need to be able to say, right, that packet of bis biscuits that Forbes is just about a munch through has a zero <laughs> carbon footprint of its supply chain. That, you know, there really is a, some, some dynamics of momentum that are coming from surprising places. And, and it's not the farmers. They've broadly just done a good thing for the humanity over time, responding to us, the consumer. But now the yeah. consumer... But, but you could also, you could throw back what we've done is because we've over-consumed, we've forced the hand of, of company. You know, so we've forced the depletion of soils. Yeah. We've forced mass use of phosphates and insecticides, et cetera, et cetera. So the question is really how do we balance that thing where we know that our population is growing, we know, and let's talk about the fundamental, and you're in that field, so we might as well talk about that field. What the hell are we going to eat over the next 50 years? How are we going to feed everyone? Is it something now we have to look at, you know, when you talk about start with the waste, are you saying start with the waste or are you saying start with our consumption? Actually, I'm not really that fussed about consumption because I think there are two things we have to do. One is we have to restore soil health. And without getting boring on the stats, um, United Nations and others have said that, that the erosion of topsoil yeah. and the fertility in soils will not be able to feed the world's population in 60 years. So that's the first thing, restore soil health. Building block of growth, carbon. Stick carbon back in the soil. Now, clearly yeah. the argument around trees is well known, but we're taking waste CO2 that would otherwise be going up a chimney in the atmosphere and sticking it back in, in the form of calcium carbonate, i.e. chalk to you and me, um, back into the soil. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there are billions of tons of organic waste being produced every year. But going back to the point we made earlier, it's a resource. So if you can mm. take that uh, organic waste and, and re, well, to transform it, you're going to be in a position where actually consumption becomes the least of your challenges. Well, that's an interesting point because the, the whole point of this series, and in fact, this web, the, the web platform is, we don't believe you can work in denial right you know that's what diets don't work you can't just say don't eat it you'll be fine you, you've got to consume so are you saying actually what you believe is that let's not worry about let's deal with what we're producing as byproducts reuse them create technologies to capture what could go as waste and then the consumption side you won't have to have that big issue where we're all wondering how do we use less because that's quite different because people think there's a moral imperative to use less? I mean, I think there generally is, particularly around clothes, but I think the younger yeah. generation are, are, are much more sensitive to what they use and how they use it. Uh, yeah. It's not perfect yet, but it's definitely going in the right direction. But I think it's those first two points that I made that are the key that we can change and make adjustments to today, assuming consumption trends will change over time. I mean, Nielsen's put out the very large report at the end of 2019 that said 83% of consumers if they saw clear and easy to read evidence that there was a, a climate change impact to the product that they bought would change to that product. Yeah. Now, my view is that the pandemic has probably only increased that momentum. You know, that's what the big retailers and manufacturers of food are responding to, is they know we're now starting to drive that debate as a consumer. Let's talk about your technology, right? So uh, just explain it a little bit in more detail for, for, for the audience. So, we know what CO2 is. Most people know what, what it is. We breathe it out. It's out there. We all know about the, the relationship between too much CO2 and, and, and sort of global warming. How do you actually just extract the CO2? Because 
there are there are people out there who've been working for many years on something that people may have heard of the phrase CCS carbon capture and storage yeah or there's another phrase which is uh, carbon sequestration where you take carbon and you you either bury it or you put it somewhere else what are you doing in this technology that allows you to take carbon and if you can explain it simply because obviously Angus is listening but yeah. how you turn that into fertilizer well I apologize for any engineers and scientists out there because I'm just a finance guy at heart and so this is very simple but we need three things to make this work and it's a mixing and blending technology which is very straightforward and that's why thankfully it's very heavily patented but we need three things co2 from a chimney or from some separation device which is cleaning out methane from co2 we need and that's a waste because uh, otherwise it would be emitted to the atmosphere we need a, a fibrous material grass straw wood chip anything like that of which there is masses of waste around uh, mainly coming out of anaerobic digestion and we can talk about that in detail later and the third thing we need is ammonia waste ammonia is currently being discharged into rivers and seas contaminating groundwater at a frightening uh, uh, alarming rate all around the world so those three waste products give us one chemical reaction which uh, is basically passing it always reacting the ammonia and the co2 they naturally react now, the, the first outcome is that we actually are what's called exothermic. We, that reaction creates heat, zero carbon thermal energy. So the first thing we do is the operator of one of our units, we're actually giving them back free zero carbon heat. Brilliant. We then add one more component, and that gives you a second chemical reaction, which gives you three outcomes. One is all the organic matter, i.e. that fibrous material, which are, farmers are desperate to put back into their soil to give it bulk and strength. Yeah. The second thing is calcium carbonate, which is chalk, but that is a carbon molecule that will go back into the soil to engender growth. And the third thing is ammonium nitrate, which is the building block of a fertilizer. Fertilizer is three nutrients, NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. So we can combine those three and make it customizable for a farmer because we don't want to give them a generic product and say, this is what you're getting, so get on with it. We want to be able to customize it for the soil type, the crop rotation he's using, or the temperature of the soil in India and Sub-Saharan Africa. And that's broadly as simple as it gets. And you look at that, right? And this is, you know, you're, you're, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, would you still consider it as a small sort of scientific startup or are you in a, sort of a bigger phase? I don't know where you are in the scale of things now, but you're not a massive company. Yeah? You're not like a, a Unilever or something like that, yeah? That's correct. I mean, you know, as a career ambition, I didn't realize I was going to be so big in poo. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting that way. So we have three sectors that we look at. Wastewater, i.e. Yeah. Um, the food waste. Yeah. And agricultural waste, whether that's sort of straws and stuff or whether it's animal slurries from pigs and cows. Okay. And we have commercial deployments on the first of those two one with seven trent in the uk which is the second largest water utility another one with yorkshire water and then we're just about to announce a very big deal with a global food brand who is wanting to encourage their supply chain yes. to uh, go zero carbon so that they can put a stamp on the bag of biscuits saying mr consumer this is a zero carbon supply chain product for you brilliant so let's look at where we are now. So here we are, a bunch of smart scientists and a finance guy, smart one, of course, with a brilliant idea that helps 
not only use the waste that we talked about just earlier, but then create a useful product for our sake. What is it that we need to encourage this sort of science around the world? Because some would say, at the end of the day, is it we need more scientists? Is it we need funding from you know, governments around the world in investments groups? Or is it we just need to basically open up our minds and at the end of the day, it's got to be the business community that will buy your product. So where, or is it a combination of all three? How are we gonna to get to lots of companies like yours? Obviously, hopefully you're making lots of money out of it, but lots of companies like yours in Tanzania, Mumbai, you know, the middle of the Kalahari, wherever the hell they are, doing this sort of stuff, helping us around the, the world. Is it in the end that we need the governments of the world to help finance this science? Correct. And, and I think, you know, this is to Forbes's sort of core point about global governance. But yes. right now there are two aspects. One is the voice of the citizen has never been more powerful. And it's getting more powerful driven by the younger part. And, and they get it. You know, us uh, boring late 50, 60 year olds can't be determining their future. So that's one voice. And they have to keep that resonance as high as it is today, if not more so, to put pressure on these big food and, and uh, manufacturers and retailers. The second one is on governments, because one of the challenges for most new technologies in the climate change world is regulation. Regulation you know, is, is there to protect us, you, you and me, the system, but is often constructed incredibly slowly. You know, two or three years of, of reviews and, and, and open yeah. forums. Yeah. And then because they spend three or four years building the regulation, they think it probably should last for 30 years. Otherwise, they've wasted their time. Reality is innovation, particularly in climate change, is moving faster than that. So regulators are doing it on our behalf. So they need the support of the politicians to be brave enough to say, fine, we need to understand how to meet those two challenges. One, keeping us safe from... Uh, the things that regulators do in terms of the food, uh, I'm thinking about food in particular in the environment agencies, but also on the other hand, moving those regulations fast enough to respond to the innovation that is available. But that's the problem, isn't it? We, we saw it, we, you look at it all the time. Science moves so fast, regulation never ever catches up in time. So to get to where we are, is there an element where you kind of... I don't want to say it, but you kind of let the scientists regulate themselves? I don't know. I, I think not, probably, um, on balance. But I do think that, again, the voice of the people is imperative because I think we are seeing evidence and we probably will find the final brick on the wall when we get through to November this year where one of the bigger economies of the world that I possibly couldn't mention finally, hopefully, makes the change towards joining the rest of the world's climate ambitions yeah. yeah you know 325 million people going in the right direction will be a big change of course in that particular country because there has been a, an administration that's pointing in the other direction yeah it has meant that we've seen more collaboration and more cooperation amongst technology and innovators in that country absolutely and, yes you know we know let's just say it right we're not going to worry about it it's america right so yes we've seen it in california we've seen it where despite what federal government has wanted states have taken it on themselves to interact with other nations and to to work on technology so in a way what i'm trying to get to is you know the gene roddenberry world where we kind of know the science does us good and we're doing it for good but there, there has to be an element of regulation and my 
my question, maybe I'll bring the boys back in here, is how do we balance that? Because if science moves so fast, how do we regulate fast enough? Angus, go on. So you've led me into, into you know, something that I'm so passionate about, and that is that the regulators have to be up to speed with what Gaia needs. Yeah. And up to speed with what the scientists can do. And um, Cavell said that, you know, so succinctly, they're too slow and um, moving for the, for the times, I think. So global asset, global race, global scientists, global job to be done. Let's put in a global regulator. Of course, I'm, I'm that way. Now, we're living with the here and now, which is what Pavel does so well. And so hopefully more and more environmental, environmental agencies will step up, they'll collaborate more, perhaps more like the mayoral system around the world, and there'll be a, a, a new regulatory sort of sub-layer, which, which is really takes on more and more potency within a, the defence of the biosphere. But I know, Alex, you're really, really keen on regulation, aren't you? Angus, can I just butt in for one second? Yeah, uh, there. Sorry, Alex, to butt in, but uh, one of your other things, Bobsy, is, is around the, the power of the global voice. Yeah. And all the things you've mentioned before have to be driven by the power of the global vote. And the global vote. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be well, us, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think that's, you know, I've felt very strongly, Pavel, that if we stepped away and came back to the Earth as 7.6 billion people and said, we now realise we're the first three generations alive to have to protect and enhance a biosphere over the next for a thousand year view we would never in a month of sundays no one would ever stand up in the room and say hey i've got this great idea let's divide it into 195 different bits and let's put the leaders of those different bits having various mandates of the human provision of goods safety etc and make them non-specialists i mean you couldn't make it up and I think as the global citizenship come together, five billion of us will be online in 2022, we're going to realise that it's just no way to control the human environmental nexus uh, for the future. And the people will rise up and demand regulatory change, I believe governance change, and, and our first in incursion into global governance. So there's the revolutionary. Let's go back to the voice of reason. Or is Go on, Alex, what's your take on all the things we've said about the science can do, but, but how does the regulation keep up with it? Yeah, lo um, lots and lots of thoughts. Uh, yeah, firstly, you know, hearing Pavel's story and the technology there is fantastic. When you can get enhanced and improved technology and free car you know, carbon-free energy uh, and heat back at a lower cost, that's actually therefore net contributory back to nature's capital, that's fantastic. Um, and more innovators and scientists working in that regard is definitely what we need. Before coming to the regulator, what I worry about is that the sort of scale of that circular economy just not being big enough, quick enough. So yes. we emit 43 billion uh, tonnes of carbon per year. Uh, UN says to keep within the one and a half degree target, we need to reduce that by 55% by the year 2030. That's with a growing population, a rising wealth and a rising consumption, even if the individual unit of consumption might go down or the efficiency through technology, miles per gallon travelled or, uh, or carbon per mile travelled if it's an electric vehicle goes down, our total consumption is going up. We have had a rise of carbon emissions since 1800 just going up and up and up, even with 
um, you know, COVID and 2020, I'm sure that's still going to be higher carbon emissions than 2019. It's just a massive, massive task to get done in a quick way. And, and energy is approximately, according to Rystad, you know, over 60% of that carbon emission um, to do it. So I, I sort of worry that we'll get to uh, the sort of scale through the circular economy to consume that amount of waste carbon and get it back into, into there. But I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that technology can do it. Um, technologically and economically, it's a really easy question. Um, cost of carbon, uh, the, the very good economist in the Obama uh, administration, um, sort of calculated the social cost of carbon at around $50 per tonne. Um, and so price carbon, invest in renewables, problem solved. But politically and practically with certain measurements and compliance, um, that's proving much, much harder, partly because of the Westphalian 195 nations. So, your regulation needs to be set up um, and it needs to be done not necessarily prescribing what the technologies are but using certainly capitalism which is the main mechanism which is producing the most emissions to encourage you know the right way of working to price in carbon and to use mother's nature's technology uh, like you know protecting the amazon rainforest and transferring money uh, to the Amazon rainforest uh, as, as uh, maintaining that technology carbon sink, which is about 10% of, uh, yeah, sorry, 10 years worth of annual carbon emissions. Uh, yeah. So I think the, the regulation needs to incentivize the right behavior um, and allow a certain degree of autonomy and decentralization uh, to achieve the right outcome. And it's, it's going to be difficult, it's going to get it wrong, and it needs us as the population to allow it to make some failures. Uh, until we get onto the right path. I mean, how much do we put responsibility on the scientists here, Pavel? Should they not be working for companies that have got dodgy uh, ideas of what, what they do in terms of the planetary credit? Should you know, young generations of scientists now say, you know, walk with their lab coats? No, we're not going to work there. We're going to do different things. Because you could say that, you know, there is an element of science for the sake of science. I think there's evidence, and we're seeing it the whole time, for people approaching us, of, of, of young, bright grads saying, I, you know, I want to do something better with, with the skills that I've got. So I think that's yeah. The other thing I'd say is that, to, to Alex's point about whether we can move fast enough, there is no doubt about it, we're behind the eight ball. We all know that. We've known that for some years now. But um, it's something that is not a, a skill set that most financial people understand, and they probably can't even spell it, and that's collaboration. Reparation <laughs> um, is something that's absolutely prevalent in in climate change technologies. So we're talking with all the other CCU carbon capture and utilization and some of the CCS companies about how we collaborate and, uh, and coordinate to get better solutions and more importantly for Alex quicker. The other thing is partnerships, and and that's something again that is is prevalent in the climate change world. Now that doesn't mean we're going to get there in time, but we're going to do it faster than would be normally experienced in most industrial processes over the last you know five decades. Interesting that you mentioned that word collaboration because I've certainly heard some you know some wise people look at the history of of human uh, race for the last ten thousand years, and they will argue that ninety eight percent of our achievements are done through collaboration, and so only two percent is done through competition. Yeah. Of, of man's achievements so yeah what a time 
uh, for it. And it's great to hear that that your field is uh, illustrating that right now. Well, here's just give you one exact example. Uh, large power station produces more CO2 than it knows what to do with, but also as it moves away from coal, as it quite rightly should do, towards yeah. biomass, it ends up with an ash, which is a fibre, which we want. So um, we're suddenly finding the ability to put cross-sector partnerships, which are nearly more interesting than single-sector partnerships. So power station with a couple of the waste byproducts that we need, over the fence, not quite literally, but 30 miles away, we will be extracting phosphorus and ammonia from discharges, liquid discharges into rivers and seas, which have phosphorus and ammonia, two of the NPK. And then the third weird bedfellow in this cross-sector example is a food manufacturing company that has been working with its supply chain, in this case around milk with the dairy farmers, to say to them, look, we will give you a sustainable medium-term price for your milk. And in addition to which, we will give you a sustainability premium if you do one of six um, projects, uh, digging ditches, growing cover crops, usual stuff, and using zero carbon footprint fertilizer like us. Now, you would not normally put global food brand, power station, and a water utility together, but these are the sort of collaborations that are emerging, which I think is where we may get to the place we need to get to, maybe not in time, but quicker than most people think. But you see, the point would be here, if you looked at that, and, and, and I take on board everything you said, and you're right, collaboration is what you need. But at the same point, you just said on this call, you've, you've patented your, your, your processes. So in a way, what, what we're looking at is there should be no reason why you shouldn't patent your process. There shouldn't be a reason that you have to share your IP. But are we saying that actually what we need to do is find a way, this amazing way, where we can all still have our share of what little pie we need financially in the current capitalist system we have? but to be able to do the collaboration you're talking about. What you're not saying is you've got to give it all in the public domain. That, that's not what we're saying. Is, is, that, is that right, Pablo? Yeah, I mean, when I'm not saying this is open source, partly because I'm yeah. a strong believer, going back to the Solar Impulse Foundation, that through the lens of profitability, you drive momentum faster than any other way you would. So I, I mean, it's serving my own purposes to, as a profitable organisation, but I think profitability drives momentum. It's not open source, but you know, we will work in partnership with as many people as we can to drive this technology fast enough and quickly enough because we don't have a huge amount of time left. I agree with that profitability. I, you know, I wouldn't want to moralise that scientists should work for one company versus uh, another. That's starting to get into a bit of a slippery slope. And yeah. that, that's, that's where society, through laws and regulations, chooses where the sensitive boundaries are. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to, you know, obviously, there will be social pressure. Uh, which is fine, um, but you know, I'd love to see companies like Pavel's you know, and the collaborations on the cross market. And if they were incentivized with an additional fifty dollar per ton of carbon captured, just how much faster acceleration their scaling would come would would be phenomenal. And you know, to reward the people who take the risks and put the disproportionate amounts of effort and sacrifices in. Um, is why they need to retain those profits. Uh, otherwise, they just wouldn't take the risk and put the efforts in sufficiently to operate fast enough for us all. So, you know, I'd love to give them a boost with a $50 per tonne uh, per carbon sequestered uh, or utilised elsewhere. Yeah, and I, th I mean, I think you're right. There are technologies out there of which we are one, but we're not the only one by any means, that will provide economic returns. So the global food brand, who we hope to announce in about two weeks' time, is, is seeking to roll this out in, in nine jurisdictions in Europe. 
and the returns, the internal rates of return they've projected uh, are 16%. Now, any financier will say, we'll do anything at a 15%, but if you're giving me 16%, and that's without the carbon value. Now, you know, we yeah. think there's significant carbon value on top of that, which takes some of the risk away. And that's where I want to end with, just to end with, I mean, and all of this you've said has been fantastic today, Pavel, but how much of this can we replicate around the world or is it exactly what you've said if you build it in places like here and maybe america and whatever more, more developed nations but then you have the global brands almost being like the bees the vectors that will then spread it in different locations where they're operating is that the way we're going to get around it because the, the the tragedy is you might have a very smart scientist sitting in in, in mombasa who hasn't got the resources that you have to do what he, he might want to do but could it be that we actually use the power of business in a, in a way to propagate this science around the world? Yeah, and, and, and you know, there are, this technology is applicable in developing and as well as developed because the great irony of having enjoyed five decades of commercial industrialization and now saying to the developing world, actually, you can't do it like we did, yeah, it's just completely wrong. But yeah. this, this, along with other technologies, are available. They are economically viable within the developing world. And we're already talking with Southeast Asia, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. There are two jurisdictions in particular in Sub-Saharan Africa who are really leading the, tra the, the trail here. Uh, and we're already talking to them. But, you know, frankly, just as a, as, as a company in explosive growth, we need to do that probably for two years before we get into the uh, developing world. But it, it's definitely doable and at the right price for the country. Are we hopeful to end with then, guys? Technology will save us? Absolutely. I think um, I, would, I would like to finish by saying that I think that both capitalism and technology are young, strong. Yeah. They're wanting to grow. They're wanting to show that they can be huge forces for good. Let's make sure through citizenship or through regulation uh, that they have clear global biophysical boundaries to adhere to. And I think they'll thrive and, um, and get the job done. Alex? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think sort of conclusion, same as a couple of years ago, a couple of podcasts ago, sorry. It's been that long, mate. What year are we in? Um, is that, yeah, absolutely, technology makes this very solvable. This is a very, actually, easy problem to solve, um, but we'll leave it late and it will cost us more than it needs to. Yeah, I think, I think we're right. Pavel, we'd love to feature you and we will we'll, we'll do on Future Net Zero. I think it's an amazing technology you and the team there are, are working with. And thank you so much for joining us on Gaia Says No this week. That's it for this one. We will be back uh, next time. And remember, you can subscribe to futurenetzero.com. And remember that what we're trying to do is show you that, you know, let's have those conversations between business, science, government, politics, and you and me, people out there to get things going. Until the next time, thanks for listening to Gaia Says No. Thank you for listening to Gaia Says No. Don't forget to subscribe. Future Net Zero. Better business, better planet.